The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brand Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you very much, Alice. You have some updated results with regard to your recent pancreatic cancer study. This, of course, is a typically a very fatal cancer. Let's talk about that again today. Well, pancreatic cancer is, I mean, it's focus of a lot of companies and for a very good reason, and that's because it's usually not very good outcome, and then that's an understatement. I mean, the five-year survival rates on the most common form of pancreatic cancer are virtually zero. There's been a lot of focus in the industry on that particular type of pancreatic cancer, and it's actually starting to show some effects, and then we're starting to actually see increased survival rates with a number of different therapies, and there's a couple of studies about to come out um, that other people have done that are going to start showing some real big improvements, which is encouraging for all of us, both if we're patients, very encouraging, and as people in the industry, we also find that encouraging too. Now, this last study that we announced updated material or information on was curious in the fact that it fits in very nicely with what we actually believe uh, how our agent called real license works. And what we're seeing is in this particular study, we followed the patients for a very long time period, and we're still following patients in that study. And what we saw early on when you comparing the test arm, which has real lysin added to the standard of care, to the control arm, uh, which doesn't have real lysin. Early on, you didn't see much difference uh, in the overall survivals, and that actually went up to one-year survivals. There was no differences. But then you started, when you got it to two and then three-year survivals, you start to see these big differences. And at two-year survivals on the control arm, which is what people normally get, there was 0% survival. On the real lysin arm, it was 18%. And so, you know, one out of six patients is alive versus zero out of six patients. And that's the ratio. There was far more patients than that in the study. And that's pretty significant. But that's what we expect to see when you start to see immune effects, where you're actually seeing your immune system start to, to help out in the therapy. And that's really what was significant for us out of that study was just saying, hey, there's another marker showing that real lysin is interacting with the immune system, but it's also causing the benefit that patients are most interested in, which is living longer. So we are very excited about that. Over 10% of the patients are alive on the test arm in that study, and they're between two and three years. So we're hoping in a couple of quarters that we'll also be able to report on much improved three-year survivals, which would be really exciting. And that's led to us doing a study that's ongoing right now. San Antonio, where we're actively combining real license with one of the new immune therapies called checkpoint inhibitors to actually see if we can actually really promote that long-term survival in a much, much more aggressive way. Is this a disease that's more difficult to detect early on? 
Well, it was really frustrating diseases for exactly that reason. About half the patients in that study that was sponsored by the NCI actually were asymptomatic on entry, which is very unusual. It's very, very difficult to detect that disease before you start seeing symptoms. And the symptoms are usually put off to having an upset tummy or just not feeling right or something like that. So patients typically don't get scanned for that. I mean, getting scanned is a pretty aggressive step, so people don't get it. And usually when pancreatic cancer is diagnosed, it's too late. And you usually start to see those symptoms when it's spread beyond the pancreas. I mean, you can deal with pancreatic cancer if it's just in the pancreatic head, for example. I mean, just cut it out with surgery and you have actually good response rates. When it spreads, and it spreads to the liver and lymph nodes and things like that, the outcomes are almost inevitably not very good. And there's a number of diseases like that. Ovarian, which we've talked about before, is like that. You know, if you get it early, it's easy. If you get it late, it's not. Melanoma, which a lot more people are familiar with. If you get superficial melanoma, it's very early. I mean, you just cut it out and it's gone. It's done. You're, you're cured, literally. And if it spreads deep into the skin, then the survival rates drop to almost zero for long term. And so early detection for a number of these cancers is critical. And to me, and I hate to say this as a person who develops drugs, some of the biggest advances we've seen in oncology hasn't been new therapies, it's been new diagnostics. That's also a very exciting part of our business right now. What about general practitioners? I mean, how educated are they these days with regard to urging their patients to get diagnoses for ovarian cancer or pancreatic cancer? I'm not talking about gynecologists or oncologists. I'm talking talking about general physicians that see people on a regular basis? I have to say that um, I think it's a really encouraging trend. I think uh, your first contact person in the healthcare system, which is now these days a general practitioner usually, is getting far more sophisticated about detecting these you know, very early cancers than they used to be. And so I, mean, I have to give them a lot of credit. It's getting far better. And part of that is just access to easier administered testing. Now, if you can get a blood test or a urine test or you know, something like that that can actually show you have early stage cancer, then you're going to pick that up in routine lab exams as long as it's incorporated in there. And again, fortunately for people in the United States, the U.S is at the top of the pyramid, if you want to think of it that way, for introducing these new things into their healthcare system. Americans really are benefiting from being the leader of the world in introducing these healthcare innovations. And so the GPs are actually becoming very effective people at detecting things. You know, a few years ago, they didn't have the tools to do so. Are insurance companies, do you believe in your opinion, are they contributing to this surge in preventive maintenance? Absolutely. I mean, the, the payers, as we call them on our side of the table, or reimbursement in, in more polite circles, which are, you know, are the both government and private insurers have a vested interest from a cost containment perspective of preventative healthcare. I mean, a $10 test that leads to a simple cure in cancer is far more cost effective than the alternative, which is to catch it late and, and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on surgery and possibly the same amount on, on drugs, still have a bad outcome, you know, and end up having to have expensive hospital stays and palliative care and all the rest of that. And so strictly from a, we want to spend as little as we humanly can Preventative healthcare is exactly where they're pushing to go towards. They're actually very rapid adopters. I have to give a lot of credit to insurers these days is that they're very much on top of adopting new technologies that side benefit of, of helping out the patients, but are largely due to cost containment. A follow-up to that would be then, are the insurance companies, government organizations, and let's say the investment community, are they looking at your company specifically due to the uh, seemingly successful research you've been able to conduct? Well, we're getting a, a lot of interest from all 
levels and all the people in that comment you just made. You know, the insurers are interested in what we do because it looks like real license. Well, definitively, that doesn't even look like it. Definitive that it's very good at tumor debulking, and it's starting to look like it actually helps out with lifespan, which we have to, of course, prove in well-designed clinical studies, which is, is coming. But that whole perspective is tempered by the fact, and in a positive way, and that the, the side effect profile of the agent is superior. We've treated over a thousand patients with the agent now, so we have a very good idea about the safety profile. And when you can tell somebody that they're going to get a, a cancer therapy where the main side effect is maybe a degree or two of fever for a few hours on day two or day three of a five-day cycle, and they might feel tired. That's the overwhelmingly most common side effect profile that a patient will report. I compare that to historic side effect profiles of chemotherapeutics. That's an easy sell. And the insurance people see that. They see a safe agent that probably is doing something, and that's attracting a lot of interest. And, and we're already, I mean, we're not approved yet, and we're talking with various reimbursement groups about getting listed for reimbursement, even though we're not approved yet. They're getting it. The big pharmas and our, our colleagues and the big biotech companies are beginning to pay attention to what we're doing in a very serious way, largely because of this interaction with the immune system being defined that we believe is potentially resulting in the overall survival increases that we think we're seeing. And that is you know, the, the leading edge of oncology today is all is it harnessing the immune system. So now that we're into that area in a real way and running clinical studies there, that's attracting attention from the commercial side in a real way. But they're very different concerns. The reimbursement side focuses on one thing and that, that our corporate colleagues and cousins are focusing on a different thing. I've got to throw my investor hat on for a few minutes here. When you get approval, when that happens, how does that change the financial look of your company with regard to your market cap, potentially? When people have a certainty of you actually having revenue, then that shifts your valuation model from milestones and good phase two data or good phase three data or good whatever data, and people put a soft value on that, switches it over to just good old-fashioned, nicely, easily defined valuation. And your typical biotech company that's profitable trades after-tax, not EBITDA, I mean, after after tax, the multiple is about 20, and the earnings multiple. And if you're getting bought out, the premium on that's about 15 or 20 percent. It's a pretty standard narrow band. And so, you know, if everybody says, "Okay, real license is going to get approved," and they believe that, then they go, "Well, gee, it's going to have a half a billion in, in after tax." revenue, then that'll give you a $10 billion market cap. And that number is really defensible and easy to do. So once people get to the believable part about and what they think the revenue is, that's when the real payback comes for our investors. And it's pretty significant payback when you look at market cap now versus market cap then. And so as an investor, and that's how I focus on things when I look at biotech companies to invest in, which I do quite a bit of, but that's the real payoff at the end. And it's defensible and it's solid and it's reproducible, which is, as an investor, is really critical. Brad, thanks again for joining me today on the program. I look forward to more good news coming down the road. Okay, thank you very much, Alice. I hope you have a good day. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCYF in the U.S. and as ONC on the TSX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Michael Ballinger, Chairman of the Advisory Committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SRC.V and in the U.S. as SKHRF. 
Stakeholder Gold is conducting exploration on its 100% owned Ballarat Gold property located 120 kilometers southeast of Dawson City in the White Gold District of the Yukon. Originally trained during the inflationary 1970s, Michael Ballinger is a graduate of St. Louis University where he earned a Bachelor of Science in Finance and a Bachelor of Art in Marketing before completing postgraduate work at the Wharton School of Finance. With more than 30 years of experience as a junior mining and exploration specialist, as well as a solid background in corporate finance, Ballinger's adherence to the concept of hard assets allows him to focus the practice on selecting opportunities in the global resource sector with emphasis on the precious metals exploration and development sector. Mike, welcome to the program. Nice to have you on. Thank you very much, Ellis. Thank you for having me. Tongue in cheek, I'm going to ask you this question. What are your thoughts on silver? I like silver for a number of reasons. Everybody in your audience has undoubtedly read thousands and thousands of pages and volume after volume of what I call the silver mantra. It's the same as the gold mantra, except that it's accelerated with layer after layer of steroids on top of it. The silver market is a unique market because most of the above ground supply is actually in the form of byproduct inventory held by major zinc and copper and base metal mining operations. The amount of investment demand is relatively small relative to gold, but yet if you look at the physical demand that's been creeping into our market in the last year, particularly the last three or four months, really truly even in the down period, it was last year, there was record physical offtake in places like the Far East and certainly India. You've heard the story that the historical, I should say, school to silver ratio over the last, say, 500 years has crept northward from what it used to be years ago at around 10 to 15 to 1 and has crept to as high as 80, 85, I think in 01, 02, it got as high as 90. But recently, uh, as in the middle of March, the end of March, I took a, a re-look, re-investigation, a re-analysis of silver relative to gold because, as you know, I have been looking for a short-term correction in the gold market due to the, the sheer veracity and violence of the move upward it's had in the, in the first quarter. That correction has yet to materialize, and as each day and each week goes by, the longer it holds up here, the less the likelihood. So what I did is instead of just sitting on my cash reserves waiting for the gold market to correct and give me a, a re-entry point, I just decided to go all in silver because it just felt, I wish I had something more concrete to say, but it really did feel, and that's an ad hoc method of analysis, it really did feel like silver was ready to break out. And uh, lo and behold, that was 1520, March 31st, and now we're 17 and change, that 1720 last. I would think if it can surmount 1850 in the next several weeks, then we're going to be into a bona fide bull market in silver. And uh, anybody that knows the metals markets knows that if the gold bull markets can be categorized as enjoyable, silver bull markets can be categorized as rapturous. Anybody that is on the right side of a silver bull market eventually winds up in a moment of sublime rapture because it goes and goes and goes. It is truly the most violent bull market you'll ever see. And I've been through two of them, the late 70s and again uh, recently in the 07 to 2011 period. So what's different between this potential bull market for silver and, and that which happened in 2010, 2011? I think the, the latter stages of the last precious metals bull culminated and terminated in 2011. Silver performed pretty much as it should based on its historical relationship to gold. It eventually did catch the attention of the retail market as opposed to the institutional market. And once retail came pouring in, then the discrepancy that had kept the ratio of gold to silver so high, it disappeared. And 
what you ended up having was you had raw physical retail demand outstripping supply, and that's why the ratio got down. I think at one point it was down to under 30 from a high of 90 eight years earlier. Today, there's a lot of differences in that the silver market has lagged gold so miserably. Well, certainly in the first stages of this new golden bull, but even in the down period, the latter part of 2015, even the rallies were anemic. They were just terrible. I can only speculate why silver ran into so many problems. It may be the advent of a lot of the streaming, silver streaming companies, because a lot of these companies were forced to sell silver as part of their covenants uh, regarding bondholders or the lines of credit with banks. You had a pretty consistent source of supply, and, and it was steady and it was relentless, notwithstanding the fact that, uh, and I don't want to get on my bandwagon and talk about the bullion bank's role in suppressing price, but I'm a pretty vocal proponent of eliminating the bullion bank's unfair advantage in the area of the creation of paper silver or paper gold for that matter. They really do create synthetic silver by being able to conjure up and manufacture out of thin air a contract on the COMEX which says that they agree to deliver 5,000 ounces of silver in the delivery month in which uh, they've uh, engaged the contract. And the problem with that is that they never do deliver it. So they can cap supply, they can create infinite numbers of contracts, meaning infinite ounces of silver, to meet retail and speculative demand at the pressing of a computer terminal keystroke and or uh, the uh, stroke of a pen. That, to me, it just violates everything I have ever believed in, in terms of uh, the good old-fashioned laws of demand supply. The old expression that he who sells must deliver or goes to prison doesn't apply to gold and silver and the, and the COMEX, because they've never been forced to cover. They've never been forced to maintain any sort of a, of a, of a discipline relative to the amount of gold in the vaults. Back to your original question, I think to that degree, I think where the difference lies, because in the new bull market that I see unfolding here in 2016 and beyond, I think that the application of component silver in the electronics industry is going to play a larger role in either in the late 70s, where it was primarily uh, used in the photography business and investment demand being number one, obviously, and in the latter part of 2007 to 2011, where it was still investment demand that drove it at the end. I think what we are going to get in the new bull market is a great deal of renewed investment demand, but I think industrial applications for silver are going to absolutely explode. That coupled with investment demand, where the shortages and the price discrepancy and disconnect is going to occur. So the combination of speculation and supply for silver and also excitement is driving this market. Will that ever happen for copper or PGMs? PGMs, yes. I think that with education, it'll happen with PGMs. But copper is just such a different type of market. They call it Dr. Copper for a reason, Alice. Copper producers look decades into the future. They don't look months or weeks or years into the future. You know, they're looking for 100 year, 50 years, 30 year mine lives. And for that reason, I think you don't have these sharp dislocations in supply affecting price. Although, if you look at the move from in the 2000s, I mean, I remember in the 1980 to 2000 period, you know, 75 cent copper was a bonus. That was a, you know, if you had 75 cent per pound copper, you were happy. Because I remember seeing it at 58 and 60 and 62 cents a pound. You know, as, as William Nesbitt wrote in the book Megatrends in 1990, I think it was 1990, he came out with the book, but he talked about the impact of China. And uh, that moved from 80 cents to 450 copper per pound. That was all China. That was all 
the Chinese miracle. Well, I don't think we're going to see anywhere near the kind of growth we saw in China over the next five to ten years for infrastructure build-out. Their demand for electronics is still going to be quite strong. And demand for electronics obviously uses copper, but it uses a, an increasing amount and a notable increase in the amount of silver that's used in, in those applications. What's fascinating to me now is in this particular bull run that you've been calling for a while, and I would say successfully, China's not part of the story at all, is it? No, it's not. I think when you're trying to talk to a a room full of people and you are being held out as the resident expert or guru or something, I always try and point out to people, all we can really do is handicap something, or at least we can speculate, but it's not a lot different than handicapping at a racetrack. You get all the available data, how old the horse is, how well he runs on the turf versus the, the slop versus the dirt track. You look at the lineage, you look at his last five races, you look at his heats, it's still a guess. And it's the same thing with silver or copper or gold or anything else. You're simply handicapping it. If somebody asked me what the major driver in this early new bull market has been, it's something I've written about for over a year now, and I keep saying this. And I said, there was a period of time when the the powers that be, meaning the central banks, called the Bank of Japan or the Bank of England or the Fed or the Bank of Canada or the the ECB, because they were in such a massive money-printing extravaganza, had gold and or silver been allowed to assume the, the, its rightful and historical role as a barometer or a canary in the coal mine, to want, for want of a better phrase, then gold prices and silver prices would have gone ballistic. They would have gone absolutely vertical and stayed vertical and directly correlated to the amount of money printing and credit creation that occurred from 2008 until now. $57 trillion of new fictitious wet ink money has been created either in the form of bonds or debt, but it's it's still money creation. I maintain that the central banks virtually were forced to maintain a control over the prices of gold or silver. Otherwise, they would have told the average investor and the average consumer that there were problems, that we were going to deal with hyperinflationary problems down the line. Well, a little thing happened on the way to the gate post, and that is that a new boogeyman showed up, and he was called deflation. And the deflation that occurred was now starting to impact the credit worthiness of the collateral held by the banks. So if you've got, you know, a trillion dollars in the loans out there and you're trying to run a proper loan book, you've got to have X percent of those loans collateralized. And if you go into a deflationary collapse, the value of the collateral collapses, but the value of the loan doesn't. It stays high. So by default, you're operating on a thinner and a thinner and a thinner margin level. The edge of the razor of margin becomes even more potentially damaging. So where I'm going with this is what the central banks have to suddenly acknowledge is it's not so much the actual numeric announcement of a number that depicts inflation or deflation. It's the expectation of inflation or deflation that affects behaviors. And this is what Paul Volcker uh, discussed in great lengths in the 1980s. He said if he could have controlled the, the one mistake he made in the 70s is not controlling the gold price. Because what ended up happening is it was inflationary expectations that forced loan demand through the roof. Because everybody was borrowing in depreciating currency to buy hard assets which were staying stable but that the currency that bought it could not. In other words, it was the inverse. What I think has happened now is that deflationary expectations, nearly up until about a year ago, deflationary expectations were rapidly increasing. 
and what the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of Japan had to do. Japan is the best example. They basically pulled out all the stops. It was pretty bar the door. They just decided that they were going to monetize not just bonds or currency. They're going to monetize everything. Like everything the Bank of Japan does is fictitious creation of synthetic paper. It's just money printing. That's all it is. Every central bank on the planet realized that the only thing they could, they could do was to reflate. Well, they did reflate, but deflationary expectations were predominating. They were absolutely dominant in everybody's thinking process in late 2015. So where I think the changes occurred is I think that the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of Japan realized that in order to turn in deflationary expectations into non-deflationary expectations, they had to let the canary in the coal mine behave as it should, meaning gold and silver have been allowed to rise, thus reinforcing their new mem that deflation is not a worry, we're going to get back to our 2% inflation target, so it won't be deflation, it will be modest or subdued inflation. And the only way you can do that and convince people in terms of their behavior, their spending patterns, is to influence the price of gold and silver in a direction in which you want it to go. And that's why it's been allowed to go up. We're seeing it being allowed to go where it's supposed to go. There's not even a Eurozone story involved in gold right now. We just took out China. Why not take out Greece and that whole collapse of the Euro story? It's not even in the picture right now at all. It's purely market-based. You know, we don't have the answer right now. All you have really is price behavior, which is everybody makes up a, an excuse why silver is doing what it's doing, why gold is doing what it's doing. The reality is it's all speculation, and you really won't find out what the real reason is or was until a year down the line. Then it'll become obvious. The, the major you know, drop in global activity, why stock markets began to run into problems, is a great example. You know, we didn't really figure it out until a few years ago, why stocks dropped the year before, and that was that China was slowing. So when the market was declining, they weren't telling you it was because China was slowing down. They had another reason for it. Gold and silver don't have the China story. It's not the China expansion story. It's not the Euro's going to hell story. I think that the powers that be recognize that they have to repair the U.S. domestic manufacturing business. And the first place they start is by making the American currency competitive in the export market. I think that you know it would be, a, it'd be absolutely a walk in the park to repatriate a lot of these jobs that have been outsourced to India and Mexico and China and everywhere else by having the currency begin to go into a sustained period of decline. And then America would be in a relatively cheap place to invest as opposed to an expensive place to invest if you're sitting in Copenhagen or you're sitting in Rio de Janeiro or someplace like that. So I think this is a policy decision to take the U.S. dollar back down to a level where they can at least begin a sustainable multi-year program to restore the American manufacturing base, which is at the root of the problem of underemployment or unemployment in your country. In a sense, without the currency being on a gold standard, gold and silver are actually the collateral more or less right now. And furthermore, doesn't this bode well for base metals down the road, what you're saying? Yes, it does. It bodes well for anything that falls into the hard asset category. Not just gold and silver. They carry the banner for sound money. But there's no better banner for sound money than productive farmland. Farmland in southern Ontario, which is the province I live in here in Canada, because it's the Great Lakes, which includes the state you know, the, the states of Michigan and Illinois and New York as well. Well, how that farmland in and around the Great Lakes is 
carries the highest yield per acre. And I, you compare it to some of the, the big corn, you know, like Iowa, and, and the yield per acre is through the roof. Farmland is a hard asset. Nuclear power is a hard asset. Anything that is a replacement for cash or currency. In other words, bond stocks are on one side of the ledger, gold, silver, copper, mining companies, forestry, forest products, they're all on the hard asset side. So you're absolutely correct. It does bode extremely well for anything that is essentially non-financial. Are we part of the hype right now with gold and silver people like you and I? The answer is yeah, of course we are. The hype is an interesting way of describing it. If you've been a, a believer in hard assets 30 or 40 years of your investing career, you know, it was only about 16 months ago that hype would have been redefined as whining. So now that the market's turned, it's seen as hype. But most of what I was writing about in the early part of 2015 was the criminality of, of the bullion banks and their unregulated control over the price of gold and silver. I mean, I can tell you, I have people, Mike, we have people telling me, Mike, would you stop writing about this? Yeah, it's, it's rigged, but what are you going to do about it? When they'd say that, what are you going to do about it? The hair on the back of my neck used to stand up. Are we part of the hype? If you're a hard asset believer, if you believe in sound money as I have since very, very early in my career, I've never changed my fervent belief that when an institution like the U.S. Federal Reserve comes out and they say, we're sticking to our inflation target of 2%. As a citizen of the United States, and also, by the way, in Canada, the Bank of Canada does the same thing. We have an inflation target of X percent. Well, wait a minute. Where did some unelected official earn the right to tell me as a citizen that the, the currency that I'm conducting my life and my business with has a guaranteed target of a 2% erosion every year. You know, I'm a great believer that the target for inflation should be zero, not 2%. Your currency that you earn after you've paid your taxes, both the hidden and the, uh, and the unseen taxes, your currency should be expected to maintain its purchasing power. You shouldn't have to go out and worry about ridding yourself of fiat currency because you know it's going to eventually deplete and depreciate. Going back to your comment about is it hype? Yeah, finally now the gold and silver is being appreciated for what it was designed to be, which is a barometer of um, profligate fiscal policy. I rejoice that. And if it's hype, then I'm proud to be carrying a banner that has the words, the letters H-Y-P-E on it. I want to thank you for introducing me to a gentleman that I'd only heard about but had never met and never interviewed. After speaking with him for almost an hour, I don't think there's anything about him that's hype. It's excitement for all the work he's done in the Canadian Yukon. The gold has to come from somewhere. He's identified lots of it in the Yukon. And of course, you're on the advisory board of a company called Stakeholder Gold, which is a sponsor of this segment and a sponsor of this program. Let's talk about Sean Ryan, if you will. How did you first come into contact with him? Well, 2009, there was a big discovery in the Yukon that attracted a lot of attention. And it was the underworld discovery in the White Gold District uh, of the Yukon. The White Gold District is the upper elevation area due east of what was known in the 1897 to 1902 period as the Klondike. That was the source of all the, the what we call alluvial gold that was panned out of the rivers and creeks that flowed into the Yukon River. That was the Klondike Gold Rush of 1897. Sean staked that entire region. It became known to me that he was the one prospector in the area that had all the premium ground. So as we tend to do, we see someone else with a great deal of success up there as had Underworld, penny stock that was trading at $1.75 on volume and raising money and doing great work. And Ryan was the vendor of the property. So I did a 
had a quick checklist, made the appropriate phone calls, and it was determined that another junior mining company, which I won't mention right now, had a property called Rosebute, and that Sean Ryan had vended that property to them very early in the game. So I met Sean in 2010 in Toronto. He was giving a presentation to a room of about 300 people. I went up afterwards, and because of my experience as a hockey player in my hockey travels, I had run into a lot of people from uh, northern Ontario in the hockey world. And if you have traveled in the 1970s and 60s and 80s like I did in the hockey world, there's some towns up in northern Ontario that have legendary NHL superstars that came from it. Frank Mahovlich was from the Schumacher, which is, that's northern Ontario. Uh, Dave Keon from Naranda, Quebec. I mean, Ryan and I, we had people in common that I knew that knew him from my days in hockey. So it was an immediate kinship that was developed. As time went along, Sean was a little rough around the edges back then. What I was astounded with was just how scientific everything he had done was. This gentleman was a data junkie long before it became fashionable. And he had taken the same work that the senior mining companies would hire students to go in and do geochemical sampling and paving minimum wages and, and never really check over their work. And results being that they really didn't have much of a database. I think Sean would be the first one to admit that what he did is he paid 1,000% attention and interest and prioritization of the geochemical sampling work and trained the people and, and, and that's what, what got my attention because there was a quantifiable and discernible trend of success in the Yukon directly correlated to the sample results that Sean had gathered. So here we are in 2016, what has Sean got? Well, he had the original Underworld Discovery, which got taken over by Ken Ross for $148 million. bucks. That was Sean's. And the next one, which is actually now eclipsing that as a world-class mining operation to be, is the coffee property, which is Kamenak Gold Corporation, Ira Thomas running it. And Kamenak has been one of our greatest successes in the last year, accumulating the shares all through 2015 as low as 55 cents. And I think earlier today, it got up to within a hair's breadth of $2 a share. And Kamenak has 5.2 million ounces present, 3.4 million ounces inferred, 1.8 million ounces measured and indicated on a property that Sean vended to them in 2000, and I believe 2008, and where only 20% of the property has been explored. So Stakeholder is not a Sean Ryan property. The initial one we have is Ballarat. But Sean told me back then, 2010, that amongst the best trench results in the entire Yukon, including Underworld and Kamenak, was found on the Ballarat project in terms of grade. There hasn't been a lot of work done on Ballarat, but that's why we've engaged Sean and his company, Ground Truth Explorations, to go back and redo all the work on Ballarat. My money's riding on Sean. He he told everybody there would be a discovery on the uh, Underworld property, which is called Golden Saddle. He told me back then that Kamenak, this was before, long before Kamenak had a resort, he said he figured there was three to five million ounces there, right again. And now he's going to go and turn his energy to, to Ballarat and stakeholder gold. I was actually delighted to have him join my advisory committee because he's not on the advisory committee of either Golden Saddle or Kamenak Gold. So I'm quite pleased to have him join me. Well, as I recall, this Ballarat project was the one that he couldn't get. It was there, and it gave him excitement about what he was doing. So he's got a real interest in being involved with you, and he's the expert on the scene, more or less. It was really a good, mutually beneficial project for both Sean's enterprise and stakeholders as well. Yeah, it's a symbiosis. Notwithstanding the fact that he and I enjoy each other's company a hell of a lot, you know, there's very little what I call Bay Street talk when Sean and I sit down. It's, it's anything but Bay Street talk. It's geology, it's probabilities, it's 
you know, I'll ask him how a drone can mimic a helicopter array and geophysics and things like that. He's a scientist. That's the best way I can describe it. He has a vast array of other properties. In fact, this afternoon he called me just before you called, Alice, and he had read my newsletter, which went out this morning, and, and I was talking about silver, and he said, and this is the beauty of Sean, he called up seeing opportunity, he called up to advise me. And he's got three bang-up silver properties in his little quiver, as I call it, and that I should have a look at. When you have a guy like me, I mean, he is Mr. Yukon, and, and you've got some rather notable gold uh, silver discoveries up in the Yukon, such as Keno Hill being one of them, and he's got a property tied on to Keno. The one thing about Sean, when he brings you some potential acquisition prospects, is you can't afford not to look at him. I have to be there looking at what he's offering me, because his screening process is that effective. Michael, I know you're a gold bug. Are you more of a silver bug at the moment, aside from everything we've spoken about? I am, for two reasons. The ratio of gold prices to silver prices, number one. Historically, as I said in my forecast issue back in the latter part of last year, I look for a move in gold over the next five to ten years that is going to be the same kind of amplitude in terms of percentage moves off the lows that we saw in 1976. But And I've pegged a gold to silver ratio, which is currently about 73. I think it can move to 50. If you're going to get a decline in the ratio within the context of a bull market in gold, then the leverage contained in silver ownership is many times that of gold. Because not only do you get the, the precious metals complex all moving up in tandem, it would infer that silver is going to outperform on a percentage basis the moving gold. So not only do you get the leverage contained in the sector, you get a leverage contained in the relationship between gold and silver. And fundamentals, supply-demand characteristics globally are far in favor for silver. By far and away, outperforms gold in every aspect. Notwithstanding the fact that we don't have central banks sitting with literally thousands of tons of silver waiting to be the threat of which could be on the market tomorrow morning. Yes, you have made big base metal supplies, but I think a lot of that is largely contained. So to answer your question, yes, I'm far more favorably disposed to silver than I am gold right now. All right. Well, I consider you more of an analyst than a pundit, and I don't like asking this question anymore. I feel fairly safe asking it of you. Price predictions for silver for uh, May or June of 2016 and December of 2016. Go ahead, if you dare. That would fall into the intermediate term category. I think that starting with gold, I think we'll see a breakout through 1450 gold in 2016. So if we use December 2016 as the target month, I think we will have approached that level by the end of the year. I'm going to suggest to you that I think the ratio of gold to silver could be below 60 by that time frame. So all you have to do is basically take the, if, if, if I'm correct and I see a 1450 gold price, and I can assume a 60 ratio. It's interesting that it comes in somewhere around $24 an ounce by the end of the year for silver. And when I started throwing those numbers out to some friends of mine at GATA the other day, they actually came back and some of the good old-fashioned technical point-and-figure analysis and candlesticks and all that, it was almost right on the money. 23 to 24 is a target price for a lot of the, the technicians out there by the end of the year. So I'd have to say $23, $24. silver is where I'll peg it, $14.50 gold. You know, that's just the intermediate term, and I'm assuming that it's going to take six months to work over this egregiously overbought condition we have for all the metals markets. And it does incorporate the potential for a 10 or 15% correction within that as well. Beyond 2016, I think uh, there's a lot, even a greater degree of upside 
in both gold and silver. But again, if I'm forecasting a move in the ratio down to 50 and below, and I'm still calling for higher prices in gold, any way you cut it, silver's still the right, the more beneficial of the two metals to own. Well, Michael, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us in the program today. I look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. As always, it's my pleasure, Ellis. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Michael Ballinger, Chairman of the Advisory Committee for Stakeholder Gold Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as SRC.B and in the U.S. as SKHRF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com and listen to the Ellis Mart Report in its entirety on iTunes or on the TuneIn Radio app. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, B.C. that's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Now, you've had success in the past along with your management team with a previous incarnation called Silvercrest Mines, and that company successfully sold to First Majestic Silver. You've been reborn as Silvercrest Metals under the symbol SIL with the same management team. We're just trying to do it all over again. Same success. We had Silvercrest Mines or the old Silvercrest. Basically, what we did with that company in 2006 we made a discovery in Mexico. We took that discovery into a major producer by 2012, 2013. It was done on a phased approach business model. We started out small, we generated cash flow, and from that cash flow, we grew that asset. And it got to a point where Silvercrest Mines was a one asset wonder in the industry with a great reputation. We felt it was time to take that one asset and do a deal with First Majestic Silver. And the deal that was done was basically we became owners in a major silver producer of about 23% interest. The Silvercrest Mines or Old Silvercrest shareholders got a big portion of that producer, which has a good following and good respect in the industry. And along with that deal, we did a spinoff, and this is the spinoff, Silvercrest Metals, or SIL on the market. Well, we brought in about $5 million in cash. We raised another $2.5 million, about $7.5 million in cash. So we are a cash-rich Canadian junior explorer in Mexico. And we're looking at doing this all over again. It's a lot easier this time because we got money in the bank. When we first created Silvercrest Mines in mid-2000s, we had very little to no money and very little following. We're looking at just creating more shareholder value and doing it again. And you intend on doing that with your flagship property, Las Chispas, also located in Sonora State, Mexico, not far, of course, from the Santa Elena mine, which you sold to First Majestic. Part of the success formula all along that we've had now bringing that into Silvercrest Metals was to look at things that were simple. They're easy to get to, good infrastructure. We 
know the area. It's in the state of Sonora. Great access. One of the things that's important when you're trying to explore, develop, and produce, it helps a lot to be about in the same time zone. I can fly down to site the same day and make critical decisions. That's very important for executive management to have that kind of access. Las Chispas was carved out of the deal with First Majestic as a spinoff. It's located about 25 kilometers north of the successful Santa Elena mine or about a 45 to 55 minute drive in the backyard of currently a producing mine. It's also located about the same distance from the Mercedes mine, which is a Yamana mine. That's one of Yamana's flagships and their only producer in Mexico. A great location and area to be exploring. We're looking at spending about $750,000 to a million dollars this year of our $7.5 million that's in the bank account for a discovery at Las Chispas. Las Chispas was a significant silver gold producer between 1880 and 1930. It produced down to the water table. There's approximately 20 epithermal veins. Only three of those have had any production. Their previous production was about 100 million ounces of silver and 200,000 ounces of gold. We do have direct access to a lot of underground workings right now with good values right at the face. We're just kicking off a rehabilitation program for the project. We're going to open those underground workings. There may be some high-grade material right out in front of us. When I talk high-grade, average grade of production was 1.7 kilos of silver per ton and about 15 grams per ton gold. With a share price of near 15 cents, it would be safe to say potentially that there's a lot of room for upside. We're trading at below cash value right now, if you want to call that upside. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, CEO and President of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, Ellis Martin. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with the president of Gold Source Mine, Giannis Setos. Gold Source trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. B. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company about to produce gold in English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean in South America. Now, you have an update as far as what's going on in Guyana. Is it true that you're pouring gold? We concluded construction of the mine at the end of January, and we announced that we have now entered into the phase of commissioning in February, and about 48 hours ago, we did the first gold pour. Obviously, we haven't reached commercial production yet. We expect this to be reached in the second quarter of this year. But everything's looking good. No major upsets on any part of the engineering circuit. Full force is working. The full shift there is about 10 hours shift a day. And uh, we're looking good. How much gold do you expect to pour this year? I mean, it's difficult to do the estimation yet because we have to do all the mass balances and so on in the coming couple of months, completing the, the commissioning. But I would say something between five and 10,000 ounces. And this happened very, very quickly. Absolutely. And the biggest thing that I would like to mention here, Alice, is that we deliver this construction of the mine at about 18% savings to what we put up front it will cost us. This is a very rare case in the mining world that the company commits some capital expenditure and delivers the project at 18% under budget to the market. So this is incredible. What do you expect the price of gold per ounce to be with regard to gold source? The cost, yeah, yeah. Because as I said, the only thing I don't control is the price of gold. All the other parameters are under my control. So therefore the operating costs are very good. We already experienced 
experiencing that through because we have the full force working there. We still believe we would deliver cash cost Guyana under $500, all in sustaining capital with Canadian overheads, everything between $600 and $700. Perhaps. Is that priced out during the next couple of years? Do you see production costs coming up at all, even as the price of gold increases? No, the opposite, actually. The more ounces you keep, as you ramp up the project, and, uh, you know, if you remember, this is a stage development approach. So we start with small production, but we will, every kind of year, we will almost go uh, 68% and more. As you increase your denominator of the amount of ounces, your capital expenditure at this stage is the same. Maybe we bring a little bit of more mining equipment, but it will all be great, and the average cost of per ounce will drop as we go. And what are you doing to expand the resource? It's all about expansion and free cash flow. This is a story that uh, you want to create this profit margin on per ounce basis to redeploy it in order to do expansions, both in the capacity side, in other words, put more throughput from 1,000 tons a day to 4,000 tons a day, and also improve recoveries from a pure gravity plant to introduction of a Leeds reactor, and therefore 60% recoveries to 90s, a kind of 92% recovery. Now, this is a nice marriage, this company, between you and the board of directors who are also involved with your sister company, Silvercrest Metals. You had the property. They had the management team. Give us a little bit of backstory. If you try to do M&A, a successful M&A is one plus one makes better than the sum of the two, okay? So the Silvercrest Mines team is an exceptional team, but most importantly, Ellis, they have been used to develop projects through this approach. Eric Fear is the number one name out there. They are our chief operating officer and the president of Silvercrest Metals now. So in what we call phase development approach for a project. So therefore, it was not only about the management, it was also about the plan to move Eagle Mountain from an exploration project into a fully blown mine producing operation. Okay, so that's the big thing. So it took a lot of pain over the last two and a half years for lots of people. But in our case, the marriage worked very well and we complemented one team and the other team. And now we are up and running. And I want to give a lot of credits not only to the management because the most important people are really the operating people on the ground. And we do carry an incredible team in Guyana. I'm talking now about the people, the simple workers, the fabricators, the excavator operators, the people who work day to day. I'm spending significant time of my time as a president in Guyana. Almost every month I'm there. And I see what I'm saying here. It's not a praise. So I want to congratulate all of these people. And without the dedication of this team and also the support from the government of Guyana and a lot of other people on the local stakeholding environment, the local communities and so on, we wouldn't be in this position. Yanis Sitos, thank you so much for the update. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation to talk again. I've been speaking with Yanis Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. And now, here's Bob Lang. Hi, welcome to Car Kicks. Briggs Cunningham was pretty wealthy. Okay, he was very wealthy. He bought the first Ferrari sold in the United States right from Luigi Cinetti, America's first Ferrari dealer. He also owned one of the six Bugatti Royales ever made. He loved sailing and skippered the Columbia, a 12-meter yacht, to victory in the America's Cup in 1958. But we remember him mostly for his passion of racing cars. 
add the few that he built. He began racing internationally in 1930 with college buddies Miles and Samuel Collier, who started what was to become the Sports Car Club of America. Cunningham would build cars up to 1955 when IRS rules changed and made it prohibitive for him to continue. The early 50s saw him produce race cars and adapt a few for public highways, the Continental C3 notably among them. His production facility was in West Palm Beach, Florida, where he had mechanics installing 331 Chrysler V8s into his race car chassis, which were then shipped to Turin, Italy to get their beautiful aluminum and steel bodies made by Vignali. Only 25 Continental C3s were produced, 20 coupes and 5 convertibles, and they all are still around today. Cunningham wanted to take Le Mans. In 53, they won the Sebring 12-hour and won their class at Le Mans. Although the Cunningham cars bowed out in 1955, Cunningham's team continued racing other makes, and although Carroll Shelby is credited with creating the classic white with blue racing stripe color combo, it was actually Cunningham that created the color combination. Shelby adopted the reverse, a blue car with white stripes, and then later added the white cars with blue stripes. The Cunningham team was also responsible for the first ever class win by a Corvette at Le Mans. His accomplishments toward the goal of an All-American win at Le Mans were legendary. In July of 2003, Briggs Swift Cunningham passed away in Las Vegas at the age of 96. Later that year, he was inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame. You can learn more about Briggs Cunningham at BriggsCunningham.com. If you search on YouTube, Lime Rock Park Cunningham, you'll find another video on the C3. Time now for the Car Kicks Car Quiz. The author of the James Bond series of books, Ian Fleming, wrote a children's book about a car which was later made into a movie. What was the name of the car and the movie? A. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang B. Herbie the Love Bug C. Speed Racer or D. Cars We'll have the answer in just a moment. Just like to take a moment and call out CarParts.com. It isn't just a website, it's a team of people dedicated to getting you the right part at the best price. My experience with them was excellent. The part arrived damaged from shipping. It was expensive and heavy. CarParts.com didn't miss a beat. With one contact to customer service, a new part was flying on its way fast. Try CarParts.com. They have over a million parts and accessories. They have high-performance parts that'll help your engine turn out more power, or just that hard-to-find replacement part. Their large selection of parts combined with their user-friendly interface makes shopping easy. Finding your needed components is a snap because of the features on their site. They offer a low price guarantee as well with every product that they offer. Shipping is fast. As I said, my experience was absolutely stress-free. Excellent customer service and no sweat problem resolution. I endorse them as a quality provider. Use CarParts.com next time you need a part for your daily driver, hot rod, classic, or off-road vehicle. CarParts.com And now the answer to your Car Kicks Car Quiz. The answer is A. In 1968, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, based on Ian Fleming's novel Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, The Magical Car, starred Dick Van Dyke as Caracatus Potts and Talian House as Truly Scrumptious. For the film version, six cars were created, including a fully functional road-going car built by Alan Mann Racing in 1967. Actor Dick Van Dyke, who drove the car in the film, said the car was a little difficult to maneuver with the turning radius of a battleship. Join us next time for another Car Kicks Car Quiz. Have you heard of Faraday Future? If you haven't, you're probably in the majority. They've been working stealthily for the last year and a half. They're one of the companies, or I should say automakers, who are looking to turn the idea of the automobile and how we use it on its head. They're working to create fully electric vehicles that offer smart and seamless connectivity to the whole world so that the vehicle would not just be fully electric and connected to the Internet's content, but would also provide, according to Faraday's model, 
autonomous driving, and unique ownership models. Maybe you won't own the car as much as just use it. At CES, they showed a concept car, the FF01, developed to show their modular design concept called Variable Form Architecture, or VFA. It allows any number of body styles to be built atop the same chassis, which will likely be part of their connected production car goals. The concept car is said to have a thousand horsepower and a zero to 60 time of three seconds and a top speed of just over 200 miles an hour. But will it do it autonomously? For Car Kicks, I'm Bob Lang. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.